You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. All right, good morning, New Life. Welcome to church. Uh, If you are here at the North Campus, welcome. If you're joining us online or even downtown, our downtown campus will be streaming this service as well. We want to welcome you all uh, to church. If you are new with us, my name is Pastor Micah. I am the downtown campus pastor, and I fill in when Pastor Rod is gone, or maybe he's downtown, or for whatever reason, uh, I'm here to fill in. And Pastor Rod is actually down in Peru with Pastor Chuck and a team of of people that went down there to serve the the churches of New Life uh, down there in Peru and Iquitos. And so please be praying for him and Pastor Chuck and the team as they're going about uh, their, their mission work and the ministry that's happening down there. And be praying for the churches of Peru. These are always good reminders for us, whether we're going there or not, that we have brothers and sisters all around the world, and for us specifically in Iquitos, who call themselves new lifers, right? They're Nueva Vida-ers, or however you say that in Spanish, right? And so those are our brothers and sisters. Make sure you're keeping them uh, in prayer as you go about Uh, your life because they need it just like we need prayer uh, here. So you saw the bumper video. We are in a series called Countercultural, and we're looking at how Jesus is taking cultural ideas and he's flipping them on their head. Okay, we've been looking at this sermon for a few weeks now, (laughs) and it's really been a challenge. I don't know if you guys have got that. If you haven't seen the message from last week, I would encourage you to go and watch that. This is sort of like a little two-part series inside of our broader series of countercultural where we're looking at things like uh, lust and adultery, and today we're gonna be looking at divorce. Uh, But Jesus is teaching us something about us. Okay, we talked about this in the past, but what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do is it's meant to show you that if you wanna obtain the good life, if you wanna achieve the things that your heart most deeply longs after, it's not found in the things that we typically think make us happy. It's not found in the stuff, it's not found in the cars. It's not found in that dream spouse or that dream family. The reality of the gospel and what Jesus is teaching us in the sermon is that if we wanna be truly happy, then what it looks like for us to do that is to give up everything to Jesus and follow after him. It's to pursue the kingdom of God. It's a matter of the heart. I was reading a text earlier, and it says this uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. It says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart is also. If you remember the message from last week, Pastor Rodney shared a very profound and deeply convicting passage where it said, if you, men, if you look at a woman with lust, in your eyes, you committed adultery with her in your heart. Right before that passage, it says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you have anger against your, your brother, you'll be liable in the courts. You'll be guilty before the courts. You'll be guilty of the same punishment of murder. What Jesus is doing is he's going straight to the heart. He knows that human beings get caught up in the laws and the stuff of life, and so what he's doing is he's putting our hearts on display, and what we're meant to see is that there's something wrong with me. I can't live up to the standard that Jesus is setting 
for me, and so I need someone else who's not me, someone who is perfect, to come on my behalf and take my place. I need them to come and give me the wisdom that I need, give me the key to unlocking the good life that I so desperately seek. The first point I want to give you this morning is that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's showing us that we need a transplant, not a treatment. Write that down. We need a transplant, not a treatment. There's a big difference between those two. When you think of a treatment, I always think of like, you know, if I have a a sore shoulder or something of that nature, right? It's like, honey, grab me the icy hot, right? I need that, that nice, cool breeze and then that nice warmth to kind of help tenderize those muscles. Or maybe, maybe you pull the ligament and you have to go get a surgery and then after that surgery, there's a treatment that you're on that's gonna help you recover faster, right? I know ladies, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on you for a little bit, so just bear with me. But ladies, oftentimes you kind of do this to the guys, right? Like you have a, you'll have a long week, okay? And you'll say, you know what, I just had a really long week and I kind of got a headache and, and the Tylenol, the ibuprofen's not really working anymore, so, so I, need to, I need to get out. I need to, I need to go have some, some me treatment time, right? I need to go have a treatment. So the guys are like, well, is she going to go to the quick care? Or like, Mo, is everything okay? Okay, honey, like you go do what you need to do. And then they're taking pictures and selfies with their buddies at you know, Revive Day Spa or whatever, and they're getting their hands done, and their nails painted and stuff, and they're, they're getting treatment. And it's like, that's not really treatment, okay? Right? But that's what they'll say, ladies, right? I mean, my wife, my wife she kind of does this. She's kind of tricky. She's a little bit manipulative, right? And she's, she's really not here to defend herself so I can pick on her. But this is what she'll do. She'll be walking in front of me, and this, this happened yesterday, I'm telling you, okay? And this is what she do. She has like this signal that I know from a mile away, she just throws her arm up in the air, right? Husbands, you, you know what I'm talking about? She just throws her arm up in the air. She kind of does this thing where she's like, mm, makes a little grunting noise, right? And I know a statement's coming that's gonna be followed with a question. And the statement is, ooh, my shoulder hurts. Babe, can you give me a back rub, right? I mean, that's what she does. She needs a treatment. She needs something to help alleviate those deep knots and my poor thumbs that have almost been dislocated several times, right? My knuckles that have been, you know, twisted and turned as I'm trying to get those demonically possessed knots out of her back, right? It, it, it brings pain to me, but I know it's coming because I see the arm go up. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yep. Uh, I, this guy knows what I'm talking about, okay? But that's a treatment. That's something that's helped, that helps alleviate some pain and it takes something that's an affliction and it makes it a little bit better for the time being or it helps you recover in a way. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is not a treatment that helps you do some things better in your life so you can have a better life. It's not a list of things that you do. If you, if you perform X, Y, and Z, then you'll be a good person and when you're a good person, you're gonna get the good wife. And when you're a good person, you're going to get a good wife and you're going to get the good kids. And when you're a good person, you get the good wife and the good kids, you're going to be happier. You're going to get that better job. And when you get that better job, you're going to make more money. And when you make more money, you get it by the boat. When you make more money, you get to go have the lake house. When you make more money, everything will be better. That is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not giving us a treatment to make something better. What he's doing with the sermon is he's coming to us and he's saying, you need a transplant. You need a transplant. You need someone to come in and cut something out of you and put something into you. And what we've seen with the sermon so far is Jesus is dealing with the heart. 
Jesus is picking up on a theme that some 600 years before he would ever go up the mountain and give his sermon on the mount, there was a prophet by the name of Ezekiel who was with the people of God in Babylon. They were there because of their sin. They were there because they wandered away from the things of God. They had chased those things that they thought would fulfill them. They had chased those things that they thought would give them the good life. And so God released them in their judgment and he allowed the Babylonians, used the Babylonians to come and bring them into captivity. So they're literally living in slavery and this is what God speaks through the prophet prophet Ezekiel. He says this in chapter 36, verse 26 of the book of Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put it within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What Jesus, or what, excuse me, what Ezekiel prophesies well before Jesus' time is he prophesies someone who's going to come and he's going to bring with him a new heart. And he's gonna replace the hearts of stone, the hearts of stone that chase after the things that they thought would make them happy, but only leads to death. And so Ezekiel is waiting for this man. The people of God are waiting for this man that would come and take a people that were impure and make them pure again. They were longing for the day when someone would come and they would open up the chest cavity to their heart and give them a new heart. This week when I studied for this message, I watched two open heart transplants, a heart transplant. Have you guys ever seen that? You know, you can just go on YouTube and watch that kind of stuff. It's bizarre, okay? In fact, I got a, I got a buddy who goes downtown. His name's Nolan, right? And he's, he's studying for the MCAT. And so Nolan, if you're watching, listen up. I'm gonna give you a little cheat sheet that you can take with you because I'm, I'm a medical expert, okay, in, in open heart surgeries and heart transplants. But it is insane what they do, Okay? They, they take a saw, like a power tool, and they literally cut you right down the sternum, and they split you wide open. Right? Sorry, I'm not going to get too graphic, okay? There's blood gushing everywhere. No. Um, but then you see this heart pumping inside of a chest. You're like, this is the source of this person. If that heart stops, this person is dead. This is the organ that's pushing heart, or excuse me, pushing blood all over the body and making it so that they can live life. And now you're looking at this thing beating and you know if they're taking it out, there's something wrong with it. There's something diseased, there's something broken, there's a valve off in the heart to where they have to take it out. And so what they do is they take a, this scissors and, and they just they cut it out. It's a really graphic process. They take the center organ of this person that keeps them alive. They, have to, they stick a, a, a hose down their mouth and they have a machine that literally keeps their lungs Pumping. They have to pour ice water in the, the chest cavity in order to cool the body down so that they don't die. It's amazing the procedure that they can do, and they can literally pull someone's heart out, and they can take a donor's heart that's good, and they can put that heart inside of the body, and they can sew everything back together. They can close everything back up, and after a process of recovery, a person can then continue their life. It's amazing. It's fantastic what we can do medically these days. And what Jesus is doing with us is he's doing the same thing the prophet Ezekiel prophesied 600 years before. He's coming to us and saying, hey, there's a problem with the heart. And what I'm here to do, what Jesus is here to do, is he's here to operate on each one of us and replace those parts of our heart, replace the whole thing. He's gonna give us a new heart. And that only comes, that only comes when we surrender to him and we follow after him. Let's go to our text for today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. 
Remember, Jesus just gets done talking about lust and how if you look at a woman with lust, uh, you've committed adultery in your heart. If, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Thanks, Jesus. Right? And so we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It says this, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, today we're going to take a look at a text that deals with divorce. And one thing that I know in doing my research for this, divorce, that word itself can muster up a lot of emotions. In fact, there's some of you, when you hear that word, your palms will actually get sweaty. Did you know there's actually a physical reality that comes with the word divorce? Your palms might get a little sweaty. There's actually elevated heart rates that will happen, especially in children who have watched the, the two people they love go through a, a, a horrible divorce. The, their heart rates will actually increase. And it's actually, it can be dangerous for them. I've heard stories of, of, of children who, when, when their dad walks out on them, they get terrified at night and they actually start wetting the bed again. This word carries a lot of baggage. It carries a lot of emotion with them. And so even when you hear it here in this safe place, there's something in you that starts turning and it starts getting worried. It starts getting fearful. And what I want to tell you is that this is a safe place and we're going to have a safe conversation today, but we're going to let Jesus, we're going to let Jesus cut on us a little bit. We're going to let him see into our hearts just a little bit, those deep cavities that maybe we've been hiding from him that we're scared to go to. We're going to let Jesus see into our hearts this morning. Because there's no safer place to be than in his hands and in his arms. Amen? And so if that's you this morning, I want you, I want to ask you, please listen, but hang on to the end. Because the thing about divorce is it, it, it oftentimes brings a lot of fracture and brokenness into our life. But it's in the brokenness and the areas that are fractured that Jesus comes and actually does his best work. So if you're broken this morning, we're all broken. But if you're broken when you hear that word, what I want you to understand is that by the end of this, my hope and my goal is to show you a Jesus that wants to be there with you in the midst of the brokenness. Whether you've been divorced and you've gone through something terrible like that, or you're a child who's watched it and you're dealing with the repercussions of it. I want you to know that it's in those cracks, it's in those fractures, it's in those broken parts that Jesus does his best work. But let's jump into this text. We have a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time. Okay, there's a lot of cultural background that's happening here that Jesus is unpacking, that Jesus is confronting. Okay, what Jesus is referring to is a text from Deuteronomy 24.1. And it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house. The reality is when, when we look at marriage, we see an institution that God created. We go back to our origin story with our great-grandfather and great-grandmother, Adam and Eve, and we see that God caused, caused man to come to woman, and the two become one. In Genesis 2, it says that a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will go and cleave to his wife, and the two will be fused together. That Hebrew word for becoming one, it literally means to be fused together at the deepest level possible. It's the purest form of relationship two human beings can encounter in their time on this planet. 
There is nothing more pure than that relationship right there. And God designs marriage to be the container that holds the purity of this relationship. And we know how the story goes. We, we know that, that man and woman come together and there's this, this intimate mingling of souls. There's this intimate moment where the two become ones and it's, it's this, this thing that's meant to be feeling, fulfilling emotionally, relationally, sexually. It's this beautiful gift that God has given. And what we see in the teaching of Jesus and what we see in the teaching of Scripture is that there's this thing that can fracture it. It's sin and that sin manifests itself oftentimes in divorce. God creates the institution of marriage, but he never created the institution of divorce. When we look at Deuteronomy 24, and we see a situation that seems as fickle as what we read, where, where a man finds some indecency in his wife, he can put her away from him. What we have to realize is that God is reacting to a culture that took his institution and broke it. He's reacting to a people who took something that was meant to be a container to hold the purity of a relationship and we shattered it. God is on damage control in Deuteronomy 24. He's looking out at a society that is, is, is replete with adultery. People are marrying any and everybody that they want. And what we're gonna see later is that it has detrimental effects on the individuals. But when Jesus, take, Jesus is going to take this text, he's going to unpack it for the people in a very short amount of time, but he's going to do two things that are really profound. He says, you, you've heard it said that if a woman, that a man should divorce a woman and send her away with a bill of divorce. This bill of divorce was given to the woman as a protection for her. That way a man couldn't just push her away if he was a tool, right? Have you guys ever met somebody who's a tool? Don't, women, don't elbow your husbands here, right? But have you met someone who's a tool? Well, they existed then, okay? And what would happen is men would, would not divorce their wife. They didn't want that blemish on them, but they would send their wife away and legally she couldn't get married again. And if she did, if she did have a relationship with a man, the man was technically and legally sleeping with a woman who was still married. He was an adulterer, she was an adulterer. Both would be stoned. Massive consequences when somebody acts in this way of legal impurity, there's massive consequences to it. So that's what men would do. And so what they did is they implied a law and said, okay, if you're gonna get a divorce, men, you have to, if you put a woman away for indecency, you have to give her this bill of divorce because if you don't, she's in a catch-22. So Jesus is on damage control, or God is on damage control when he writes this in Deuteronomy 24. Well, humans get a hold of it and this is what happens. In Jesus' time, there were two schools of thought. You had the school of Shammai, which is the very conservative wing of the Jewish, Jewish religion. And then you had the school of Hillel. Shammai believed that the only way that you could divorce a woman, divorce was very common in that day, just like it is today. The only reason you could divorce a woman is if you found out that she had not been honest about being a virgin before she got married. If you found that out, and you had proof and reason to believe that that was the case, and they had their ways of telling, and I'm not going to tell you what those are, okay. then you could divorce your wife. You could divorce your wife, and then she'd be free to remarry, you'd be free to remarry, and life would move on. 
So that was one school of thought. The other school of thought was Hillel, and these were like the 30-year-old millennials who thought they had everything figured out, right? They studied in skinny jeans. They, they drank caramel macchiatos and, and lattes, right? The lattes that Rod says is cat pee, okay, right? That's, that's what the school of Hillel was. They were very progressive. They were very cutting edge, right? And what Hillel said is, well, when you read Deuteronomy 24, it's actually much broader than that. You just have to find any old reason that you want, and then men, you can put your wives away, or you can divorce them. You can set them free from the legal contract that you have. In fact, it's written, <laughs> it's written in the Mishnah, right? This is like Jewish oral tradition, okay? It's written in the Mishnah that, that if your wife burns toast, if she messes up your breakfast, men, then you can put her away from you. If you find a woman that's more fair than your current wife, you can put her away from you. All you have to do is give her a certificate of divorce. Men had all the power, whether it was Hillel or Shammai. Men had all the power. Jesus does two things in this text that I think are absolutely earth-shattering and groundbreaking. The first thing he says is, yeah, yeah, you have your traditions about the Old Testament. But what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna actually speak on behalf of those who don't have a voice. Here's what I mean by that. Men were the powerhouse in that community. They had all of the power. If a man thought his wife committed adultery against him, he could go to the, he could get a bill of divorce and he could be done with it that day. He would just have to get it approved by the council. It was easy, nothing to it. Wash it, now we can go on to the next one. It was a legal form of adultery, right? I mean, that's literally what it was, and that's literally what Jesus is confronting. He's confronting people who just want to get divorced because they want to move on to the next thing. They want to move on to that thing that they feel would make them happy. My wife right now doesn't make me happy. She doesn't look as good as she did when she was 30. She doesn't look as good as she did when she was 22 when I fell in love with her. Things aren't the same as they were at the beginning, and so I don't want to be with them anymore, so I'm going to put them away. They're not as nice to me as they once were. Everything changed when we got married. And now we fight all the time, so I'm gonna put her away from me. Men had that power. They had the opportunity. So what Jesus does here is he actually puts women on the same level as men. When you look at the total of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, he'll say the same thing to women that he says to men. So what Jesus is doing is he's giving a voice to the voiceless. A woman's testimony is worth half of that as, as a man. If a woman thought her husband was committing adultery, you know what she had to do? She had to go to the courts. She had to make her plea before the courts. And then the courts, if they thought the plea was good enough, then they would investigate. And then once they investigated, if they found that the husband was actually cheating on his wife in adultery with another woman, I'll come back to that point, or another married woman, then... In the presence of two or three witnesses, then the court would give the bill of divorce to the husband and the husband would be required to give it to the wife. What Jesus is doing is he's giving a voice for those who don't have a voice. He's defending those who, in a system, almost made it impossible to defend themselves. When you see the woman at the well, we oftentimes think that she's like this floozy of a woman. She's just this loose lady who's had multiple lovers because she's on husband number four or five. The reality of that day, you know what the, the, the probable cause was? She'd probably been rejected by so many men. She's ashamed, so she's going to a well that's farther away than anybody else because she's been rejected. Jesus gives dignity to those 
who culture had taken away. But the second thing that Jesus does, and this is one that hit me really, really hard. The second thing that Jesus does is he transformed a cultural norm. He transformed a cultural norm. You know why? When Rodney preached last week, he said, when a man looks at a woman with lust, he commits adultery in his mind, in his heart. For the first time in human history, everybody listen to this. The first time in human history, a man could be considered an adulterer if he slept with someone outside of the marriage covenant. Before that, check this out. This, it's true to this day. I read Jewish literature on it that is recent and, and of the common era, okay? The only way a man could ever be considered an adulterer in that day and age is if he slept with another married woman. Not another woman, another married woman. What Jesus does is he takes the lid off and he says, no, 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 no. Men, listen up right now. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. For the first time in human history, men and women are put on the same playing field. And Jesus is saying, look, Women, yeah, they can commit adultery, but men, so can you. See, in Jewish culture, a man, he could, he could go and have another lover if he wanted. He could even have another wife if he wanted. He could go and sleep with another woman, and it would be just fine. His wife couldn't even do anything about it. He had that freedom to do it. When you look at Greek and Roman culture, where Christianity would blow up into and we would get the majority of our New Testament from, Men could do whatever they wanted with whomever they wanted. Didn't matter the gender, didn't matter the place. They could go to the temple and they could worship their God and perform sexual acts there. They could come home and they could have a, a, a slave girl. They could come home to their wife, their second wife, their third wife, their fourth wife. Men could do whatever they wanted and Jesus comes on the scene and he gets all their attention and for the first time in human history, he says, men, if you do this, you commit adultery. You are guilty of the sin of taking a pure relationship that is holy, that's in the confines of marriage and you are guilty of breaking it. He elevates those who have, whose society has taken away their dignity and he brings men down in a place where now we are humbled and we have to operate inside of a context that's given to us by a holy God. I am now held to a standard. You wanna hear the irony? This is still true today. What we saw in Jesus' time is still true today. Think of a, think, we're just gonna do a case study right here. Think of a woman who sleeps around. We have name after name after name after name for what people can call her and what they do call her. What about, a, what about a dude? What happens when a guy does it? You know what the names I found? I, number one, it was really hard to find a name of what you could call him. I want to do some name calling today. I'm just kidding. The only names I could find was like Romeo. Romeo. Like you, you get called a Romeo, is, like the, is that a bad thing? It's almost like it's a badge of honor for men. The more sexual partners we have, the more that we take that, that marital purity that God gives us and we operate outside of it, it's like it's a badge of honor that we carry around with us. For women, it's shame, but for men, it's like this almost thing that gives us dignity, it gives us pride. We think we've moved on from those days, but the reality is we haven't. And what Jesus is calling, to, calling us to is he's calling us to a relationship where a man and a woman, they come together and the thing that's not there is adultery. 
The thing that's there is purity and harmony, and it's two people coming together who have come from different walks of life, and they work on their relationship together. They work on their communication together, and they fight, and and they argue, but they love, and they make up, and it's this give and take in a relationship where both are moving forward at the same time. Here's the reality of adultery. This is why Jesus makes one exception for divorce. The reason he makes one exception for divorce is adultery seeks to break that relationship up. Adultery destroys the soul. Write that down. Adultery destroys the soul. Adultery isn't just an act that you perform before your marriage is ended. It's not just the cause of a divorce. Adultery is a pathway that we walk down. Notice how Jesus does this. He says it starts with the look and it ends in an act. Adultery starts with the look. It starts with a lie. It starts with the deception and it ends in an act. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's a pathway that we walk down. We walk down this path where all of a sudden we're, we're discontent with our spouse. And we start moving in different directions and we're not, you know, as men, we're not getting the affirmation that we want. She's maybe not stroking our ego the way that we think that she should. And so we start looking for other relationships. We start looking for the boys. Or maybe it's that secretary at work. Or maybe it's that girl that you met at the gym and she's in your cycling class. I don't know why I'm picking on cyclers, sorry. Right? But you start looking for that affirmation. You start looking for that person to give you attention because you don't feel like you're getting it from your wife. And so instead of working on the relationship, all of a sudden you started down this path that was ever so subtle and you started with this idea of, you know what? Things just weren't the way they used to be. Things just weren't the way they were at the beginning and now we're, we're growing apart. And, and as we're growing apart, like I, she's not giving me what I need and so I'm gonna go over here and I'm gonna get it. It starts with a thought and it ends with an act. We think adultery is just when we give ourselves sexually to someone else in the midst of marriage, but the reality is adultery has started long before that. Ladies, it's when you feel like your husband isn't giving you the love that you feel like you need and so you start looking for the romance novels, right? You start looking for the attention and the affection of other people outside of the pure relationship that God has given to you to share with another person. You start wearing clothes that are tighter, not just for comfort, but because maybe that guy at the gym will notice you or maybe those people will see you and be like, man, she's hot. You start looking for that attention outside of the covenant of marriage and it might end in an act that you never thought you would do. The reality of adultery is it destroys the soul, but it's a process that lasts oftentimes a long time, but it starts with a lie. There's a show that I've been watching. It's called Ted Lasso. You guys ever seen that show? Probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But it's about a coach who, uh, he coaches football here in the States, but he gets this job opportunity across the pond in England to be a, a football coach there, right? But football doesn't mean the same thing, and so he's way out of his league. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's trying to coach the soccer team. And the reason he's brought over is because there's this angry wife, or excuse me, this divorced woman who's furious with her husband and she took him to court and she got his prized possession, the Richmond football team. 
And so her one purpose for the whole first season is to tank this team so she can destroy it and rub it in her ex-husband's face. So she hires a football coach to come coach her football team over in England. He has no idea what he's doing. Turns out everybody likes him. Turns out he's this really nice guy and you're really rooting for him and you're like, man, I hope this works out. Even the, the angry lady wants him to work out over time. But what you realize is this man is married, he has a son, but his wife and son aren't with him in England. And so as the season progresses, you finally get to meet the wife, you finally get to meet the son, and, and for the first time you see them at end of the, the end of the field, and, and he, Ted Lasso goes running up to them and, and gives them a big hug, and he's so happy to see them. But you can tell there's this tension in their relationship. You can tell that something is off. She looks a little bit uncomfortable. He looks a little bit uncomfortable. You can tell that they've started to grow apart, and it wasn't just an ocean that separated them. And as the, the, as the show progresses, he's getting ready for this big game that they have to win, right, or their, their soccer team is going to be no more, okay? He's getting ready for the game, and he's at home with his wife, his wife and his son, and they're having a great time. But there's this scene where he walks into the living room. She's looking out the window. She turns around and she has tears in her face. And he runs up to her concerned because he loves this woman so much. And this is what she says to him. She says, every day I wake up hoping that I'll feel the way I felt in the beginning. But maybe that's what marriage is. I'll keep trying. There's this profound moment in the show where Ted Lasso has a woman that he loves, that he has given his life for, that he sacrificed for. And she says, what I want, I desperately want to feel the same way I did at the beginning, but I don't anymore. And maybe that's just what marriage is. Maybe we fall out of love. You ever heard of that before? Maybe we've, I've, we've fallen out of love, but I'll keep trying. And the whole moral of the show I want you to listen to this because this is the way our culture thinks. The whole, the, the big point, right, the grand poo-paw of this show, the, the point that they want you to get to is that sometimes change is necessary. Sometimes things happen in our life. We get in a relationship, and as time goes on, you realize, boy, she's not what I thought she was. Or, or maybe, maybe he's just not the one that I thought I'd end up with. Maybe he's a little bit boring, you know, it was exciting here, but now he kind of just sits on the couch and watches TV. You know, now she doesn't show me the, the affection that I want, or he doesn't show me the affection that I want. And so things, we've just grown apart from each other, and there's, there's distance between us. The reality of Ted Lasso oftentimes is the reality we see all over our culture. We get bored with marriage. We want the feelings we had at the beginning right now. We've fallen out of love with somebody. And so now what we need is change. The episode ends by him saying, you know what, go. Be with who you want. You're free of me. You know what divorce means? It literally means to be set free. That's what it literally means. It's, it's like there's this legal bond that's holding two people together. And when you have divorce in there, it's like it, it separates the two and the two can go do whatever they want to do. The wife was looking for that thing that would fulfill her and she thought Ted Lasso was it and she realized she was wrong. But what's her solution? Her solution is, I need to go find that relationship that's gonna make me whole. 
I need to go find that man that's going to make me fulfilled. I need to go get that career that I wanted to get because if I can get that career, then everything's going to be okay. Then I can live the good life. Then I, I can finally be happy. Do you know what the heart of that show, the problem with it is? Is it centers around you and your happiness. The very thing that Jesus is confronting in the Sermon on the Mount is the very thing we see play out in our culture over and over and over again. And it's the thing that is subtly destroying the fabric of a society. It's the thing that's slowly destroying families over and over again. It's the thing that's causing in our children fear and panic and insecurities because we're not sure if maybe we were the problem, and now we're left to pick up the pieces because we took something that was pure that God gave to us and we did it our way. We did it our way. And because we did it our way, it fractured and it broke. All over scripture, what we see is God uses adultery to show people walking away from him. God uses marriage to describe our relationship with God, right? He uses marriage as sort of that analogy. And so when the people of God turn away from him and they, they, they run after their sin, he actually says that they're adulterers. They're cheating on him with other gods. They're seeking other things to find fulfillment in rather than the one who created them and knows them better than anybody else. And God knows that when they seek after those other things, it's, it's gonna be judgment upon them. They're gonna find death. They're not gonna find life. And so we have this romanticized view of marriage and love that if, if I fall out of love with somebody, then I need to be away from them because I need to find that thing that makes me happy. Here's the reality. God knows what that thing you're seeking after is, and it's not the thing you should be seeking after. God knows the thing that was meant to fulfill your heart wasn't just a simple relationship here on earth within the covenant of marriage, but it's ultimately him. And when you chase after something that is outside of God and his plan, what you're chasing after is that thing that you think will make you happy, your control, your choice. That's what God is confronting. That's what Jesus is confronting in these passages. That's what he's confronting in our lives. See, the reality of adultery and divorce is it's so much bigger than what we think. We look at a marriage that's broken and we think, oh, how sad. But the reality is, when we look at our relationship with God, every single one of us, there's something in our hearts that separate us from him. And we're on this path where we have a heart of stone, as Ezekiel said. And as we walk down this path, we begin to be entertained and filled with the things of this world and this culture. And so instead of living countercultural, as Jesus calls us to, we look just like everybody else. We look just like, we just look like marriage was back then. It looks just the same way today. And what we need to find ourselves in is in a place of humility that says, God, I'm broken. If divorce is a word that that causes you to turn in your stomach, that causes you to be fearful, that, that brings up anger and hatred in your life, you know what that means? It means you're broke. It means the way that God intended for you to live, it means you're on a different path and you're broken. 
We're all broken. We've all divorced ourselves from God. That's the reality of the gospel. But the beauty of gospel is this. Marriage points us to redemption. Marriage points us to redemption. Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like to have a holy marriage. And it's a, if this is what it is. At the end of time, Jesus is going to make all wrongs right. He's going to bring peace into the midst of chaos. Communication, guys, I know it's hard now. It's going to be, set, it's going to be done there. We're going to be able to communicate freely with Christ. But this is the picture he gives in Revelation 19.7. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Do you know who the bride is? The bride is you. Jesus says, if you put your faith in me, even though you've divorced yourself from me, even though you've walked down a path that's counter to, to my desire and my, my plan, you can be redeemed. And one day I'm gonna make all things right. And if you repent of your sin and you put your faith in me, you're not only gonna be saved from the fires of hell, but you're gonna be ushered into a ceremony where you'll sit down with your groom and together we will feast. Jesus points us to a day when one day he will marry us. And in that marriage, we will be fully redeemed. In that marriage, there will be purity. In that marriage, there will be wholeness. There will be life because we finally made it out of the bondage of sin and into the triumph of our beloved. That's the reality of the gospel. That's what Jesus puts out in front of us. He says, one day you will marry me. One day you're gonna have a relationship with a man who is all powerful. You're gonna have a relationship with a man who does, who has the power to create entire universes with the word from his mouth. You will have a relationship with somebody who's gonna fill every single void that you think needs to be filled in your heart, that you're longing for, that you desire. One day he will come. One day you won't have to search anymore. One day you won't have to sit on the couch lonely because you've been rejected. One day you won't have to, you won't have to deal with the pain of divorce anymore because the marriage supper of the lamb is coming. And when that supper comes, everything that is wrong will be made right. God's plan is redemptive. We talked about heart transplants earlier and how we need a new heart. You know what happens in a heart transplant after the surgery? I had a woman come share this with me uh, before the service. She said, there's a long process where you recover and then once you're recovered, you never get off a special medication they give you because if you get off the medication, your body will reject the heart. One day, we will be redeemed. One day, all what's wrong will be made right. It's a day where there'll be no more divorce. It's a day where there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more chaos. There'll be no more hatred. There'll be no more lust. There'll be no more anger because we will be totally and completely satisfied with Christ. But until that day comes, here we are. I was talking with a man before first service and he was talking about the family situation and there was some divorce that had happened and so there was some some intermingling of families, right? And anytime there's intermingling of families, there's, there's an opportunity for catastrophe. And so he was just sharing some things with me. And he said, oh, the webs that we spin. Oh, the webs that we spin and they get so out of control and they get so chaotic sometimes and it becomes so difficult to understand how everything is supposed to work and how God could do something in the midst of all of this crazy. Oh, the webs that we spin. 
Here's the beauty of the gospel. One day we're going to be redeemed. We're not going to have to deal with this anymore. But until that day comes, Jesus has given us a medication. That medication is the gospel. The thing that we take every single day to keep that heart beating, that new heart that he's given us, the medication, the pills that we pop is the gospel. It's understanding that Jesus came down to this earth and he stood on the path that we have carved out, the path that leads to adultery, the path that leads us away from God. Jesus walked down that path. He encountered anger, he encountered bitterness. He encountered people who had power and lorded it over others. He encountered people who lost their dignity. He, he encountered people who were abused and manipulated. He himself went to a cross where he was abused and manipulated. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was hated. And the reason he did it, the reason he did it is to fulfill the plan of God and because he knew at the end of that path one day there's gonna be a marriage. He was forsaken by God. He was separated from God. But the reason he did it is he held on to the marriage. He held on to the day when, when you and I, when, when we would repent of our sin and put our faith in him, he held on to the day when we would ascend with him into heaven and we would see him face to face. He did it for you. So if you've been through a divorce, if you've watched a loved one go through divorce. Maybe your parents went through this. Maybe you're freaking out inside right now because you hate this conversation. Here's what I wanna share with you. The marriage is coming and that marriage is good. Jesus made a way for people who were impure like you and me. He made a way for us to be pure. It's by his blood, it's by his sacrifice. We need him to live just like you, you, you take a hamburger, right? and you eat the hamburger, you need, that, that, you need something to die in order for you to live, right? Just like we need that, we need the gospel. That's the pill that we take. That's the medication that keeps the heart pumping so that way our body doesn't reject it. That's what we need, church, amen? Amen, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. We thank you that your, your gospel the gospel of, that, that we are impure, Lord, that we have sinned, that we fall short of your glory and your kingdom, but you made a way. You were our substitute. You were our sacrifice. Your blood was shed so that we could have life. Your heart was given so that we could have a new heart and a new life. Jesus, we worship you and we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you that no matter what it is that we're going through, Lord, maybe Maybe we've come out of a really hard divorce and we're trying to navigate what it looks like, Lord. Maybe we're in the middle of a situation that could lead to divorce and it needs some redemption, Lord. Maybe we've watched people go through divorce and, and it's broken our heart. Maybe we're a, a kid of someone, a couple who's been divorced and dad or mom has walked out and we're dealing with the pieces and trying to pick things up. Wherever it is, Father, let us cling to your medication. Let us cling to the thing that can transform our heart but keep that heart pumping along the way so that no matter what trials come, God, we know that we're in your hands. We know that you have us. Humble us with your gospel. Humble us with the reality that we've all sinned and fall short of your glory, and we need you. Humble us, Jesus. 
so that we can look to the future and see the marriage that you have in store for us, a marriage that's pure, a marriage that's whole. And we can put our hope in you, the one who's meant to fulfill our soul. We pray these things in your name.